You're listening to Word and Sacrament, a podcast all about the gifts of God for the people of God. Today on the show, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Bird. Dr. Michael Bird is lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and is also visiting research professor at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Bird also serves as a priest in the Anglican Church and has written a number of books, including The Gospel of the Lord, How the Early Church Wrote the Story of Jesus, Evangelical Theology, A Biblical and Systematic Introduction, and more recently, An Anomalous Jew, Paul Among Jews, Greeks, and Romans. Today, we will be discussing Dr. Michael Bird's book, What Christians Ought to Believe, an Introduction to Christian Doctrine Through the Apostles' Creed, and specifically about the early church creeds and what those creeds mean for us today. Now, unfortunately, during the course of the interview, we did experience some technical difficulties and some of Dr. Bird's audio was lost. Now, thankfully, the sum total of what was lost was only about 30 seconds, and it happened in places where the content of what was being said wasn't really detrimental to the conversation. So just wanted to fill you guys in on that up front. Thanks for listening, and here's my interview with Dr. Michael Bird. So, Dr. Bird, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, okay. Well, my name's Mike Bird. I'm lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I've spent some time in the Army in the uh, mid to late 90s, and I decided after that I'd wanted to go into Christian ministry. I was thinking about being a military chaplain, but as I went through seminary, uh, it became clear my giftings were more on the academic side. So I went off and did some graduate studies, did a doctorate, uh, taught for some years in Scotland and in Brisbane, and finally ended up in uh, Melbourne, Australia, teaching at Ridley College. Um, Yeah, that's basically how how it all happened, and I started writing a few things, and people started reading them, and and I still (laughs) still do that to this day, basically. So that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that's the, the short side of it. All right, that's great. We're going to be talking about your book, uh, What Christians Ought to Believe, an Introduction to Christian Doctrine Through the Apostles' Creed. So maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about some of the reasons that led you uh, to write this book. I think that there was a number of things. One thing I wanted to help Christians understand was what's called the creedal heritage of the church or the resources of some of the creeds, particularly the Apostles' Creed, as something that can be used as a teaching tool in the church, something that can be used in worship, something that anchors our faith in something more than what a trendy pastor with $200 glasses and a $50 haircut and his own opinions, <laughs> uh, that we are part of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, whether you're Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Orthodox, Episcopalian, or Methodist, there is a common heritage, a common theological DNA that we all share if we're Christians. And I wanted to say, okay, here's the Apostles' Creed. goes back to probably the late 2nd century in Rome, the earliest Christian mm-hmm. syllabus there is for teaching the basics of Christian beliefs. And this is something that can be a cause of theological renewal in your faith and for your church. So that was, that was the basic aim of the book. Right. Well, that's fantastic. I really want to hone in specifically on the first two chapters of the book and 
kind of talk about creeds and creedal Christianity in specific, maybe you could start out here uh, from here and give us a basic definition of what a creed is and maybe why creeds matter. Okay, uh, creeds matter because they summarize what the Bible says and what the church has received. So it's, you know, and, and this comes down to, I mean, the creed is a tradition. And some people think tradition bad. You know, who needs tradition when I've got my Bible? Right. But the fact is, everyone reads their Bible through the lens of some tradition. Even the pulpit-pounding fundamentalist still, still <laughs> appeals to a consensus within their own church as to how to read the Bible. Now, whether it applies to the millennium or baptism or church government, they're still appealing to a consensus, which is probably generations old in their own church. So we all have a tradition of some sort. And what I tell my students is tradition is what the church has learned from reading scripture. Tradition is a tool for reading scripture. Now, we should read scripture in light of tradition, but in reflex, uh, we also read um, tradition in light of scripture. So we can be critical of that tradition whenever it doesn't conform or line up with scripture. And the creed is, the Apostles' Creed is probably one of the oldest traditions there are. It tells you what the main Christian beliefs are, and it starts off with God, the person and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, and Christian hope. It, it really is Christianity for dummies. And even if you if you were living in Rome in the late 2nd century, or or somewhere like you know Yugoslavia, or the Balkans in the 4th century, or France in the 10th century, even though you are illiterate, you could know the creed and know it in your own language, and you had a little portable story to take with you wherever you were about what the main Christian doctrines are. In the book, you discussed that before the Apostles' Creed, there were these creedal formulations in Scripture, such as the Shema in the Old Testament, and verses like 1 Timothy 3.16 and Philippians 2 in the New Testament that sort of give us these creeds in Scripture itself. Yeah. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, you do find these statements in the Bible, we could call them like proto-creedal summaries, or in some cases just full-on creeds, statements mm -hmm. that summarize the belief of God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, the most basic one is the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is, you know, the, the bold and bald statement of Israel's monotheistic faith. They believe in one God, not a not a polytheistic God, not a tribe of gods, not a pantheon of gods. They believe one God of creation and covenant. And you come into the New Testament, and you, and you find these short little statements spread throughout the New Testament that are almost like, you know, theological tweets. You know, they're of that 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 size, <laughs> that they're that compact. You know, which which you can find, and you could argue that something like Philippians two whether that was a hymn or was a creed or just a piece of elegant prose, it summarized the church's story of Jesus, the incarnation. Now, Philippians 2, you know, verses 5 to 11, it's a great summary. Or Colossians 1, 15 to 20. You know, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, that, that kind of a thing. And then, like you said, 1 Timothy 3, 16, you know, he appeared in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, that type of thing. That These are the short little sharp, sharp, sharp summaries that, that don't say everything about everything, but they provide a good little, um, if you like, uh, litmus test. 
if someone can say that and affirm that, then they're probably in the right place, to, at least to begin with. So, and that's what the creeds did. They summarized what Christians believe, and it was a, it was a faith that then could be shared, expressed by others, regardless of whether they were from Macedonia or Syria or Egypt. These creeds brought the church together, and I would say provided the basis for determining which books would then be put in the New Testament, because the 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 creeds are an expression of what's called the regular fidei, the rule of faith, which is the basic story that holds together the Old Testament. Jesus and the Apostles. And the regular for day is that story which then became uh, expressed in the creeds and then it was the regular for day and the creeds that then allowed them to sort out which book should be in the Christian Bible. In the book you talk specifically about four creeds that were formulated by the early church. Maybe you could give us a little bit of the theological and historical <clears throat> background to those four creeds. Yeah, the Apostles' Creed most probably originated as a creed for baptismal candidates in the Roman Church. So if you were preparing to convert to Christianity, which this was a process you did not simply walk down an aisle, this could take years of, wow. of classes and that sort of thing, um, of, be, of being a, a catechist. Uh, so you would do that, but at the end of the baptism ceremony, you would you would say, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. So it, it seems to have originated somewhere along that that line. Then you have what's called the Nicene Creed, and this is a creed that emerged to deal with the Arian controversy. There was a guy called Arius, and his his funky view was that Jesus is divine but not divine in the same way that the Father is divine. He's kind of like mostly divine or semi-divine or half-divine. And some people said, whoa, 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 that is not kosher. Um, and, I mean, Aris also said that Jesus was a heavenly being but a created being. And uh, he was a great little um, uh, hymnist or music writer. He wrote a hit song called There Was a Time When the Sun Was Not. <laughs> And uh, so and so he was opposed, and people wanted had to argue against him, saying that no, the son is fully divine, fully equal to the Father, and they they came up with the word homoousios to say that Jesus is the same substance with the Father. He's equal in being to the Father. That's what it means. He's equal in being to the Father, and he has always existed. He's not made. He's eternally begotten. That is to say, he eternally relates to the Father as his Father. It doesn't mean a literal begottenness, that kind of a thing, but it, it sort of defines the relationship that the the logos, the eternal word, has with uh, with 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 the, with the Almighty, with the Father. Uh, now the thing is, the Nicene Creed of three twenty five, sorry, the Creed of Nicaea, I should say, is the technical term for it. That kind of uh, the debate still went on for another fifty years, and it got right. involved various machinations of the imperial family. And then that some of the church was acting a bit like, you know, um, mafia factions vying for power. Uh, it was very political. <laughs> it was theolo- theological. It was really ugly, um, that kind of a thing. And then it came to a head again in 381 where they kind of updated the Creed of Nicaea to become the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the creed that, that uh, is confessed by churches throughout the world. Uh, whether they're Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, 
the uh, Nicene Creed is is often the one that's celebrated, and, and its current form goes back to 381. Uh, you've also got the uh, Chalcedon definition, which was a way of trying to uh, not express the divinity of Jesus, but say how does his two how do his two natures relate to each other? Uh, how is he human? How is he defined? Is it just like these two natures put in a blender? They said no. Uh, is it because the divine sort of over, overpowers the human? No. Was it the divine came upon a normal human and just sort of, you know, inhabited him, kind of like possessed some poor guy called Jesus? They said, mm, no. And they came up with what's called hypostatic union, which say that the two natures of Jesus are united, but they are unmixed. Okay. So they, they, are, they are united together in one person. So Jesus is one person, not two people. Uh, and he has he has two wills, a divine will and a human will. Um, uh, but he's one person. So that's what the Chalcedon definition. Then you have what's called the Athanasian Creed, which was not by Athanasius, but more so named after him. And that comes from the 5th century, probably in Egypt, which tries to give a very dense and expansive summary of what a Trinitarian faith looks like. So in a nutshell, those are the major creeds, if you like, of Christendom. I recently listened to the debate you did with Dr. Bart Ehrman. And in the debate, Dr. Bart Ehrman makes the case that the more natural reading of the Gospels lends itself to an adoptionistic Christology, and that the later formulations of the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are more a product of a progressive doctrinal formulation and not so much a natural reading of the text. What would be your thoughts on that? Um, look, yeah, I, I, I disagree with Bart. The idea that the church went from adoptionism, and adoptionism is, is what, we, what we'd call a heresy, right. that the that the Jesus became the Son either at his resurrection or at his baptism. So the idea that Jesus was a mere man who was adopted as God's Son at his resurrection or baptism uh, no, I'm not buying that package. That's that's about as convincing as Bill Clinton taking a vow of chastity and celibacy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not buying that one. Uh, however, what we do have to say, and with with no problem if, to to admit this, is that it ch- took the church some three centuries to find a way to coherently hold together the fact that there is one God. Who is three persons? It took it took them a while, and there was a lot of proposals. Like some, one of the adoption is an option. They said, "Yeah, well, if Jesus is adopted, that would solve the problem." They go, "Well, no, actually, it doesn't solve the problem because it means he's not fully divine." Some said, "Well, maybe it's one God with like three faces, so not three persons, just three faces." Uh, faces, and I mean, well, if you read the best the baptism of Jesus, that it's kind of a bit weird, you know. You know, right. one God comes to baptism, and then and then he becomes the spirit who jumps on himself, and then he does a bit of divine ventriloquism to say, this is my son in whom I'm de- whom, in whom I am well pleased. Right. Um, it's a little bit, I mean, you can't read the baptism story like that, so we can't take that as an option. Do we say there are three gods? Well, that scores about a 12.6 on the heresy meter, and it only goes up to 10, <laughs> right. so we can't do that one either. And eventually the formula they came up with was one God, three persons in one substance, equal in in authority, majesty, power, and might. 
And that was how they, that was a way to hold together the biblical material. And that, although it does have some sort of issues, do you emphasize the unity or the diversity of God more, of the Godhead itself? So there's still some great questions that theologians even today wrestle with. But it took the, it did take the church a while to know its own mind and find the best language, grammar, and the best formula for expressing what Scripture itself says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that uh, the Word became flesh and that the Word is fully God, that type of thing. So it, it did take a while. Uh, that was because of the complex nature of the topic they're dealing with. Earlier, you brought up this idea of how the creeds influenced the formulation of the canon. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit more for our listeners. Yeah, when it comes to uh, the, the the New Testament canon, there is nowhere in the, the New Testament which it, where it tells you which book should be in the New Testament. Right. So how do you know which book should be in the New Testament? And the early church did not go around with an app called an inspiration meter and just wave it over a book, and you go, like, yeah, Romans, do, 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 do. yeah, that's good. And then you get to something like the Gospel of Thomas, and it goes, woo, 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 woo. you know, there was nothing like that. So how do you know which books should be in the sacred register of Christian books? Hmm. And generally speaking, it seems as if there were certain criteria that they had. Was it written by an apostle or one of their associates? Did it come from the apostolic era? Was it orthodox? Did it line up with the faith that the church knew? Was And was the book shared and used widely around the Christian churches of the uh, of the Pan-Mediterranean and the, the ancient Near East? That seemed to be the main criteria. But on that one on orthodoxy, when you read a book, did it line up with... The, the creeds and the, the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude describes it. And there were some books that, that, that did garner a lot of popularity, and some people were very keen on including them, like The Shepherd of Hamas was a very popular book. It was, although it was pre-written in the 140s in Rome, some people thought this should be included. Although the problem is it, its Christology is a little bit dodgy in places. Sometimes you don't know whether... Jesus is the Holy Spirit, or Jesus is an angel. So despite some good things in it, it was a little, it smelt a little bit funky in some places. And yeah. also, it, it could not claim to be written by the apostles or come from the apostolic era. It came from a, you know, it came from a generation or two after the apostles. And so there were some writings that were contenders, but never made it in. And there were some writings like, you know, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Truth, which are largely written by deviant or what we would call heretical groups. And uh, they were just so bad, they were never contenders to get into the canon. Hmm. <laughs> so so that there was an actual process. You know, the, the Bible did not fall out of the sky, bound in leather, written in King James English, complete with Schofield footnotes and the words of Jesus in red. <laughs> okay, right. so the, the, the church, again, they had to think, okay, given everything that we've got, all the writings of the apostles, what do we make as the Christian sequel to the Jewish Bible or to the Old Testament? And it, it did take a little while, but there was a very quick consensus. Certainly by the end of the second century, people seemed to agree the four Gospels, Paul's letters, Acts, First John and First Peter. Everyone seems to be pretty sure about that. Some books like Second um, Peter 
and Revelation. Some people did scratch their head a bit and go, hmm, no, I'm not too sure. But eventually the consensus became they should be included in the canon. And that's, you know, partly how, how we got the New Testament. Now, that's a somewhat simplistic telling, but that's the gist of it. Right. That's great. And as you kind of move down through church history, um, there were other creeds and confessions that have been formulated. And I was wondering maybe if you could tell us your opinion or your thoughts on these more elaborate confessions that have come come about, such things like the Westminster Confession or in the Anglican tradition we have the 39 Articles, things like that. What are your thoughts on these more elaborate, detailed confessions? Do you think they serve this, a similar purpose or is it something of a different nature? Um, yeah, I think they have a similar purpose. Uh, in the case of the Westminster Confession, it's, it's probably the single greatest Protestant confession. Right. That there is, uh, it, it aligns with what you would call a, a reformed or a or a uh, Presbyterian, largely mm-hmm. understanding of the Christian faith, and it was written at a time when the when Protestants are disengaging themselves from and distinguishing themselves from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Roman Catholic Church is kind of changing from the medieval Catholic Church to a, a Renaissance or a, uh, or a post-Reformation Church itself. So, and it's the attempt to set out how, how you kind of recalibrate Christianity once you've broken from, from the mother. Like when, when you've been, you know, dare I say, emancipated from your parents, mm-hmm. uh, how, how do you discover your own identity and your own values? which is largely what the Westminster Confession is. Uh, some people will disagree on various elements of it, ranging from baptism to its view of predestination and what it says about church government and even church-state relationships. But it remains one of the most uh, influential documents on the Protestant faith. That was largely adopted as well, with some cosmetic differences by Baptists in the London Baptist Confession. Right and also in the Savoy Declaration taken up by Congregationalists as well. Mm. Um, so I think it, it certainly remains a document. I, I mean, I, I, I insist that my students have to read the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. Mm. Um, but, I mean, there, there, are, there are some downsides to it. The Westminster Confession focuses 80% of its content on personal individual soteriology. In other words, right. 80% of its contents focuses on um, how do I get saved? Uh, and that is because the issue of the day, what separated the Roman Church and the Protestants was largely uh, how does one get right with God? So that's where it focuses most of its content. Whereas the night reflect the contingent circumstances of their own day, which is proof, for my mind, why we ca- every few hundred years we need to be writing new creeds because there's always new issues that crop up. There's new challenges, uh, there's new debates, uh, new things we have to consider, and they vary from place to place. I mean, in Africa, one of the things the church has to wrestle with is things like polygamy. Um, Hmm. uh, In the West, there's other things. Uh, We could say that's the the big debates these days is largely discussions about uh, sexuality and identity as well, uh, and all sorts of things like that. Uh, the 39 Articles is similar. It's, it's a much shorter creed and less less expansive as a statement right. of faith, uh, somewhat terse in points. I mean, on Scripture, it simply says we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. 
it doesn't go into anything like infallibility or inerrancy, so uh, some would find fault with that. But it's still, I think, a very short uh, and concise summary of the major teachings of the Christian faith, and uh, as uh, understood in a somewhat um, uh, Anglo-centric tradition of the Church of England, and it's also trying to find a way to bring Protestants and those with Catholic sympathies together. So it's something of a of a compromised document, and now that can mean in many ways it's, it's a bit of a cop-out, or is it trying to simply have a, a broad church where people are united by a number of things? So, yeah, that's, 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 so it's a slightly different texture and intent behind it. Right. Uh, it's still a, a magnificent and wonderful document, and for me as an Anglican, it's obviously very near and dear to my own heart. Yeah, that's great. I was curious what you thought. Um, obviously, today we are not a church without her- heresy and heretical teachers and things of that nature. And uh, oftentimes it seems that people in different traditions tend to have different views of heresy. Some people might say, well, if you deny this one article of the Westminster, then you're a heretic, maybe because you deny sola fide. Or yeah. And other traditions, they would want to keep it to a strict, you know, going against the Nicene faith as heresy. What would be your yeah. views on that? Um, yeah, well, I, I've, I just finished recording a course for um, Logos Mobile Education called The History of Heresy, from mm-hmm. the Judaizers to Joel Osteen. Uh, <laughs> I'm, joking, I'm joking, I'm uh, um, joking. I did do a course, but, but it wasn't called um, From the Judaizers to Joel Osteen. <laughs> Uh, although that was my original idea, but they were worried about what sales in Houston could mean. That's too um, bad. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been called a heretic. I mean, seriously, go to Google, put in Michael Bird, <laughs> you will find people calling me a heretic uh, right. for all ranging from my political persuasion. Uh, on the other hand, it can be for. Um, all sorts of things. I mean, I, I tend to say we need to reserve heresy for the big ticket items. Yeah, heresy is something that really goes against the major tenets of the faith. Um, sort of, you know, nice d- denying sort of like Nicene Creed type of stuff. Like if you mm-hmm. deny that God is one, if you deny that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that's capital H heresy. Then there's other things that I would say are erroneous and perhaps unhealthy, um, certain ethical uh, certain ethical positions. Uh, I would not call heresy, but I would say are very unhealthy and unwholesome and should not be welcomed in the church. And then there's another category of things which are not, they're not heresy or not technically error, they're just more well, just stupid. Um, one TV evangel and one TV evangelist. I won't say which one claimed that before the fall that Adam had uh, telepathic and telekinetic powers. He could fly. Wow. Now again, that's I wouldn't call that heresy. I'd just say that's just so stupid. <laughs> like why? Why would you believe that? Although um, the same same tele evangelist has got a wonderful YouTube clip where he argues there's nine persons in the Trinity. Because, uh, seriously, look up look up Benny Hinn, Trinity, nine persons. It is yeah. hilarious. And the sad thing is not that he's saying this nonsense, but there are people listening and nodding, going, mm. yes, there are nine people in the Trinity, which is stupid because Trinity means three. Uh, so, <laughs> I, so even the level of the math doesn't really work. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so saying that um, Adam could fly, uh, yeah, stupid. 
saying that there's nine people in the Trinity. Well, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a Baptist, I would not call infant baptism heresy. Uh, it might be wrong. It might not have a be that might be might not be scriptural in your thing, but I wouldn't call it heresy. Right. Uh, whereas I have heard some Baptist friends of mine describe infant baptism as heresy. Um, so I think I think I think we need to be um, reserved for using that language because that really is heresy. Means you know do do do, do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Um, do do not get eternal life. It means you're taking your soul to a place where it is very dangerous and you go at your own risk. Right. That's great. Um, recently I've heard, um, especially amongst some in the reform camp, um, there's been discussions about things that they disagree with. And for instance, like the apostles creed, this idea of Christ descending into hell has been controversial. And some have <clears> even <throat> suggested that the, the creed could be changed, that they could just take that part out. What are your thoughts on, people trying to change the creeds today? Uh, I don't like the idea of writing new creeds, but the whole point of a creed is you've got a statement of faith that that everyone on the planet, rather, regardless of whether you're Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, whether you're in El Salvador or in Czechoslovakia or in, or in Nigeria, that is universal. So right. you you don't just tinker with the creeds, and that statement about the the, the Christ descent is so, the, the the problem is it's not that it's wrong it's just misunderstood, mm. and that's what you have to understand. For example, the creed classically does not say that Christ descended to hell. It says he descended. Uh, originally, it said he descended to Hades, uh, or the, the the waiting place of the dead. And it's not based on 1 Peter 3. It's more based on things like Acts 2, 27 and 31, yeah. where God would not allow his chosen one to, uh, to remain in the pit of death, that type of a thing. So Christ never – and the problem was in the history in the Western church, they often did not distinguish um, hell or Gehenna in Greek, uh, the place of perdition and eternal judgment. Uh, they didn't differentiate that from Hades or Sheol, which is the waiting place of the dead. And that's why in the old King James of Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the actual word there in Greek is not hell, it's Hades, uh, which, which you know I would translate it more of the doors of death would not, will not prevail against uh, the church of Jesus Christ. So I think there's a, a mistranslation problem that's emerged in the Western church which then has influenced later formations of the creed, and and, and, yet, and it comes down to the Latin where you use the word inferna or infernum, uh, which created some of these problems, and then people not knowing the difference between the two uh, is where all these problems begin. But if you understand the creed as it was originally written, and certainly as it's used in the Eastern Church somewhat rarely, there is no descent to hell. And in fact, if you read the book of Revelation, hell doesn't exist yet. I know, mind blown um because in the book of revelation it says hades is going to be thrown into hell so no one is in hell yet hmm. yeah wow. you, that's right i know mind blown <laughs> so you know so one day the waiting place of the dead will be taken to the place of eternal judgment but christ has gone to hades participating fully in the human experience of death and left it and taken with him the saints 
who were there waiting and taking them into heaven um, to share to share in life there, waiting uh, for the new creation. So once you understand that, there is no reason to tinker or change with the Apostles' Creed. That's fantastic. What would be? Um, what do you think are some of the benefits of using the creeds in our worship in our worship services today? Uh, what? Well, a good thing is this: like when you when you preach a sermon, I think it's good to have a creed afterwards because it means you measure the integrity of the sermon against the historic Orthodox faith. Right. So it's it's a good it's a good check. Like you've heard the sermon, now hear the creed. And think, do these two things line up with each other? So that's one good thing. It it's also allows the people of God to confess the, their faith uh, in every service, in, in, every, in every worship ceremony. Um, so, yeah. And also the thing, and, you know, and, and, and it's, you know, it can be, you know, everything takes practice. And, like, you know, like Usain Bolt. I mean, how many times does he practice doing um, starting out of the blocks? He practices like a hundred times. So your know, repetition is not a bad thing because it trains your mind to think theologically. And in the same way that Usain Bolt will practice a hundred times just coming out of the blocks, in the same way we practice saying the faith so it becomes absorbed into the very seat of our soul and begins to affect the... The, the cognitive frameworks of our thinking, so we begin to think, live, breathe, talk as someone who's shaped by the faith of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's great. And to close us out here, maybe you could tell us how you think the creeds could help the church at large today. Well, I would say, look, you know, don't settle for spiritual McNuggets to feed you. <laughs> there, there is a venerable feast, a feast waiting for you in the creeds of the early church. Uh, so my advice is learn them, uh, talk about them, hear about them. Uh, heaven forfend, try even memorizing them, recite them, try praying through them, taking a small group through them. There's all sorts of things uh, that you can do with the creeds, and they can be a, a force of theological renewal in your personal life and in your church life. And in an age where people are trying to conform us to various ideologies, to various other ways of thinking or ways of believing, our creeds are something we can cling to. Our creeds are our defiance against the world, that we will not be shaped by the consumer culture. We will not be shaped by political demagogues. We will not be dragged away by the winds of culture or blown away by the winds of culture. We are anchored to this one story that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that story is expressed in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Athanasian Creed. And it's these stories that really define us. That's great. Are there any resources you could recommend for our listeners to pick up on these topics? Uh, a number of places. Um, obviously, my own little book, uh, What Christians Ought to Believe, I think is uh, a good place to start. But, but there's also a number of good books. A good introduction to church history, I think, is, mm. is very important. And uh, something like Bruce Shelley's you know, Church History in Absolutely. Plain Language uh, is a very good volume I recommend. Uh, Chris Cairns has got a, a, a good church history book as well. 
Uh, Mark Knowles' volume Turning Points has also got some good summaries of uh, the, the major events in church history, not just the early creeds, but also things like uh, the Protestant church as well, something very significant. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Where can uh, people find you on the web? Uh, you can find me at my blog, which is called uh, Evangelion. Uh, my Twitter handle is at mbird12. So they're the sort of places I tend to I tend to hang out and lurk. All right. Well, that's been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to, to, to speak with you. And, uh, yeah, have a great afternoon. Yep. Okay, thanks, man. You have a, uh, have a good evening, and I'll catch you around the traps. All right. God bless. with Dr. Michael Bird. I really hope you enjoyed listening. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, be sure to hit the subscribe button on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you're listening on. And be sure to check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash word and sacrament. Thanks for listening and God bless.